All right, we'll get started. And I'd say in general, funding for the arts is suffering, uh, not just because of Donald Trump, but just across the board. And part of it is, and it relates to today's lecture, is because the arts serves a very targeted population. It's not very diversified. The people who experience the arts and enjoy the arts is a very narrow band of, of the public. And so part of like its FIA and arts administration program is how do we diversify the field and create greater access to a broader variety of people so that there'll be broader support for the arts. So we're going to continue with our discussion with achieving diversity. With, with managing diversity, in particular with achieving diversity, I want you to write down, we're going to do a little exercise, I want you to write down all the different student organizations that you're a part of at IU. So that, you know, since coming to IU, write down all the different student organizations that you participate in, that you're a part of, and just start writing down each of those organizations. And then after you have your list, I want you to pretend like your parents Parents, you're talking to your parents and they say, hey, listen, you're way too involved in all these extracurricular stuff. You need to cut way back. Like you're just, you're not spending enough time on studying and you're involved in way too many groups. So I want you to reduce it. I want you to circle or highlight your top three groups. The three groups that like, you're like, mom, dad, I just, I can't give up these three groups. I have to stay involved in these three groups. They're the three most important groups. And so I want you to put a star or asterisk um, by those three groups. And then with those three groups, I want you to conduct a diversity audit of those groups. And so what, it, and what I want you to do is basically assess the level of diversity of these organizations in terms of their racial composition. So if the group is very racially homogeneous, I want you to give it a one, a score of one. And if it's extremely racially diverse, give it a score of 10. And if it's somewhere in between, you know, give it a five or whatever. So basically, do a quick audit of each of these three organizations. Give each, each of the organizations a score between one and 10. And then after you do that, I want you to add up, add up the scores. So you can have a maximum of 30 points. Basically, take the points you have. If you had a score, a total score of uh, six or more points, stand up. So if you had six or more points, stand up. Okay, if you had 10 or more points, stay standing. So if you had 10 or more, stay standing. If you had uh, 14 or more, stay standing. If you had 16 or more, stay standing. If you had 18 or more, stay standing. If you had 20 or more, stay standing. Okay, we'll go with these two. Name your three organizations and describe their racial composition. Uh, so I'm part of Health now, which is a on campus that focuses on preventative health. So I said that that was an eight. Um, I'm also part of Preston, and that's very diverse, so I put a 10. And then I'm also part of the Health Management Association. I give that a five. Very good. And what's your three groups? Um, okay, so my first one was Alpha Gamma Delta, my sorority, and I gave that a six just because and it is all girls, so it's not like as diverse as like an organization that had both girls and guys. And then the uh, and then I also had IUDM just because guys and girls, all different ages, very different like personalities throughout, and then global brigades. Also, I gave that a seven just because it's kind of the same as like IEM, like both guys and girls, different personalities, but also coming together for like 
the same cause, I guess. So the, the reason why I wanted to do this exercise is that, in general, if I talk to IU students and I ask them, do you value diversity? And overwhelmingly, most people would say, yes, I value diversity. And yet, then if I look at your personal life, and if I look at your social networks and your social circles, they tend to be very homogeneous. And pretty consistently, whenever I do this exercise, it's amazing how low the scores people have, basically saying that their primary organizations or the primary groups that they're a part of tend to be very homogeneous and tend to be homogeneous around their identity. And what that plays into is this concept called homophily. And the reason why I did this exercise is because the word homophily, no one knows what it means. And yet it's a very powerful social force that actually influences our behavior and our networks. And so homophily, the definition of it is the tendency to associate with people who are similar to ourselves. And so this happens unconsciously. It isn't something like you intentionally, like when you stepped onto IU's campus, you said, okay, I want to go find people who are just like me, and I want to get involved with organizations of people that are just like me. You didn't say that intentionally. It's more of an unconscious, you know, after being here a couple years, you looked up and you're like, wow, all the people that I'm involved with, a lot of them tend to look like me. Not everyone. Obviously, there's some examples of people who are in more diverse organizations, but on the whole or on average, we naturally gravitate towards people who are similar to us. And even if you think about like the first day of class when you walked into this room and you're like, who should I sit next to? Or you walk into a social setting, who do you find yourself gravitating towards? It's someone who has something in common with you or something similar. And so homophily is something that is widespread. Even if you think about who you're going to marry, chances are it's going to be someone who's socially similar to you. Or if you think about the neighborhood that you're going to move into after you graduate from IU, it's going to be of people who are similar to you. Or the school, if you have children, the school that your kids is going to, are going to go to, it's going to be a very homogeneous school. So there's this ongoing widespread tendency called homophily that is just gravitating us towards people who are similar to us. And what that means in the workplace is it affects our hiring. So if you're an employer and you're hiring people, there's going to be a tendency to hire people who are similar to you. Now again, you're not saying uh, intentionally like, I don't want diversity. It's just when you're looking at a group of applications or you're interviewing people and you reflect on the interview, you're like, oh, I, I really like that person. I think we just really connected. I, I, I had a similar background as them and I got their jokes and I got their references and I really think they'd be a good fit for this organization. We just get along really well. And it's because of social similarity. And so this idea of homophily affects or undermines efforts to become a diverse organization. So I'd say a lot of you would say, yes, I want a diverse organization and I'm going to aspire to that. But I would say that it's actually pretty challenging because of homophily. Not just with who you hire, but if you think of board members, your networks, you tend to select board members based on your networks. If your network is homogeneous, the network is going to be a homogeneous board. And so when we're talking about diversity and wanting to achieve diversity, one of the big challenges is this topic of homophily. And so the question is, how do you counteract homophily? And on Thursday when we did the exercise in class where you, know, you basically talked about what your graduating high school class was like, social composition compared to IU, and a lot of you described IU as being more diverse than where you came from, than your high school. And so actually at IU, you actually have an opportunity to engage difference. 
you have an opportunity to encounter people who are socially different from you. Maybe in your high school, you didn't even have a choice. You just kind of were like, it's all the same people, so I don't even have an option. But actually at IU, you have an opportunity to engage difference. But what's interesting, and I see this in my own life, if I'm in a social setting and there's someone who's socially different from me, I can either choose to engage them or I avoid them. And what's weird is when I choose to avoid them, which is oftentimes what I do, I almost pretend as if they don't exist because I don't want it to be obvious that I'm avoiding them, so I just ignore them or I overlook them or I just pretend like, oh, I didn't see you because you don't want it to be known that you're avoiding them. And so when we talk about homophily and this intentionality of counteracting it, it's actually being proactive of saying, yeah, I know my tendency is to gravitate towards people who are similar to me, and if I'm actually really valuing diversity and an advocate for diversity, I need to be actually consciously engaging people who are different from me and going out of my way to involve them in the organization. And when I think about it in terms of an organization, if you're leading an organization or if you think of any of your nonprofits, you hold this big event, the tendency is to look at all the people who are there and say, wow, look at all the people who came and oh, I recognize that person. And, oh, isn't it great that so-and-so came? But I would say that a better question to ask as the leader of the organization is when you scan the room, you say, well, who is not here? Who is not represented? And, and you can begin to say, okay, what is our target audience? And you identify who are the groups and people and constituents that we're wanting to serve. And who's not here? Who's not being represented? So if I'm a, a faculty member and I really care about teaching to the whole spectrum of students, I could say, well, gosh, are there many non-traditional students here? And what are the extra challenges that non-traditional students, students who are in their 30s or something, coming back to school, and what are the extra challenges that they have? And what are ways that I could actually design my course to accommodate non-traditional students? And I need to ask myself, are they here? Are they represented in this class? But you would do that for any organization that you're a part of, along any dimension that you care about. You'd say, well, who is not here? Who's not represented uh, in our organization? Yeah. Are there, when classes are chosen, are there sometimes like filters to make sure that there is diversity in the classroom, or is it completely like whoever signs up first? It's whoever signs up first, but I would say SPIA, so that's at the, the class level, but SPIA <laughs> is very intentional of like recruiting students in the sense of when we set the classes. So if all the classes are during the day, then we sometimes eliminate people who have full-time classes. <coughs> where if they have a full-time job, they can't even take certain classes. So SPIA intentionally set some classes after 5 p.m. to be intentional of reaching non-traditional students. Or there's other aspects of marketing and designing the program to accommodate people who are not sort of the mainstream majority student population. So, good question though. Because a lot of times you think, well, yeah, if people want to take the class, they sign up for it. Well, if I'm working 40 hours a week and my current situation is such that I can't do a class between 8 and 5, I need evening classes, but SPIA doesn't offer them, then I'm sort of pushed out of that option. But a good question. So and then if, we, if we think about diversity and representativeness, what would you guess is the percentage of white students at IU? Any ideas? If you had to guess, what percentage of, of the students at IU are, are white? What you say? 75. 75. 75. 80. 80. Any others? 65. Okay, 65. Anyone think anything outside of that range of 65 to 100? So the actual percentage is roughly 80% white, 
And then this is interesting, 5% black, 5% Latino, 5% Asian, and then 5% is multiracial or interracial. And so this is IU's racial composition, 80% white and then 5% across the board. And so IU has this huge initiative of wanting to become more diverse, like they're saying, you know, at the university level and at SPIA's level, of wanting to increase the diversity of IU. And so if we were going to talk to President McRobbie and talk about his diversity initiative, and you asked him, well, so what is the optimal level of diversity? Like, what is, you have this big diversity initiative, what are we aspiring to? What are we shooting for? Like, when will we know when we've achieved diversity? And what would you guys say should IU aspire to in terms of diversity? This is what the current reality is. It's 80% white, 5% of, of the different other racial groups. What would you say is the optimal level of diversity for IU? Yeah, probably the same ratio that the United States holds up. Okay. So the, so the ratio of the U.S., and why would you say that? I feel like that's sustainable. <coughs> it would be too difficult to try to, you know, we'd be recruiting too hard to get, let's say, like 60% of the population to be minorities. We would be kind of like exhausting our resources to okay. get to happen. So, yeah, so trying to do something like that. What would other people, what would other people say is the optimal, yeah? Diversity of the state. Okay, diversity of the state. Why would you say that compared to Because it's a state institution. Okay. It's run by the state. It should mirror what the state does. Okay. Yeah. Anyone who would advocate, well, really, it should be 25% white, 25% black, 25% Latino, 25% Asian. Would anyone say that? Why so? Okay. So to make everyone feel sort of equally represented uh, across the board. So let's say, let's call it equal representation. So those are, those are, in a sense, the three different options. What's interesting is whether it be IU or any organization, they have these big diversity initiatives, but they don't really talk about what their goal is, like what they're actually trying to achieve. Or it's implied that it's this equal proportionality of 25% across the board, and yet is that is that feasible, is that is that ideal, is that optimal? And when you're an organization, you're talking about diversity, it's, it's important to value diversity, but it's also just as important to know what you're aiming for. And I would, I would sort of agree with Brandon in that, so with IU, IU is a state mandate to provide public education for the people of Indiana. So that's the mandate of Indiana University. And so in a sense, IU should be representative of Indiana's population. Now, if there's out-of-staters who want to come to IU, fine, that's great. But we need to make sure that at least amongst the Indiana residents who are coming to IU, that the, the population of IU would be representative of the population of Indiana in terms of, of racial composition and, and other categories. And so actually, Indiana is 82% white, 9% black, 5% Latino, 3% Asian. And so what's interesting is, in terms of the population of Indiana, IU is actually fairly representative of the population of Indiana. And so, you know, we're, I think it's a little bit overrepresented of white students, underrepresented of black students, and then fairly equally representative of Latino and Asian students. The point with this is that it isn't necessarily about becoming diverse, you know, equal representation, but more being representative of the population that you're serving. So this is just IU. 
But think of the organization in Detroit that's going to be starting up. You would want, if you're thinking about diversity, you want your organization to be representative of the population that you're serving. Or that would be an ideal thing to aspire to. We did, in one of the classes, we did an audit of the Bloomington Police Department. And when we were talking to the police chief, and he was talking about his diversity initiatives, and, and he was sort of thinking in his mind, he felt this weight that the Bloomington Police Department needs to have equal representation of all races. And he was just like, there is no way that I could pull that off. There's no way that I could get 25% of my police force being Asian American. Like, there isn't a large enough pool of applicants in Bloomington, people who live in Bloomington. He said, we'd, start, we'd have to start recruiting people from Indianapolis or even Chicago to move down to Bloomington in order to get 25% representation of Asian American police officers. And so, but then as we began talking about, well, what is the population that the Bloomington Police Department is serving, and is the police force representative of that? It was still overrepresented of white police officers, but when he was thinking through how to shift the organization, it was much easier to think through shifting it to a representative amount versus an equal proportion amount. And so as an organization, when you're thinking about achieving diversity, thinking through, well, actually, what are my goals? What do I want to achieve in terms of diversity? Not just racial diversity, but in whether it be class diversity, age diversity, gender diversity, is an important thing. And again, it goes back to this homophily where there's a tendency to recruit and to target people who are similar to yourselves. In terms of boards, so with every nonprofit organization, you, you're going to have a board. And the board sort of helps maintain the mission and focus and direction of your organization. So if you're a national nonprofit, you'd want your nonprofit to, in a sense, be representative of the U.S. population. So this is a racial breakdown of the U.S. population. And if we think about Fortune 500 boards, so this is the private sector, there are no Known for being disproportionately or overwhelmingly white in their composition. So 87% of all board members are, are white. And there's usually a lot of pushback on that, saying like this is just this is skewed in representation and, and people of color are underrepresented on these on these boards. But what I find even more striking is the statistic for nonprofits. So if you look at the boards of nonprofits, they too are well overrepresented by white people, by in people of color are underrepresented. And so you would, in some ways you could say, well, the private sector, well, they're going to, they have other incentives and other motivations, and so it's going to be hard for them to turn the ship. But if you think of the social sector, where it's actually designed to serve the public and be representative of the public, for it to be skewed in this way is something that's problematic. It is supposed to be public serving organizations, and yet it's not representative of the population, then that's problematic. And so again, all this emphasis on achieving diversity, I'm not saying that these people who set up these boards are racist and want to single out, you know, and sort of favor white people and say, well, let's stack our boards with white people. It's because of more social forces where you just sort of, you're thinking about who should we ask on the board? You go to your networks and it ends up being people like yourself and it just self-perpetuates in terms of having the board consistently be skewed in one direction. Not just with race, but also with uh, gender. Overwhelmingly more men uh, compared to women 
on the boards of nonprofits. So that's focusing on achieving diversity, and I want to transition a little bit to managing diversity. And when I talk about managing diversity, so I teach a whole class on managing diversity, and I don't like the name of the class at all because it gives the impression like if you do a managing diversity workshop, it's the idea that, okay, I'm a white leader of an organization, and now there's people of color coming into my organization, so how do I manage them? How do I manage these people, these new people who are different from us? And it, it sets up this dynamic of like, un, it's going to be unhealthy for your organization if you view it in the context of how do I handle these people, these new people? And instead, I think it's better to have the framework of how do I help the organization navigate and engage social differences? And really, and I say this in the context of the broader society, how do I lead an organization in the context of a socially diverse environment? And so it's more so understanding how to navigate these differences, how to engage these differences, and how to value these differences as an organization, rather than how do you manage it? Manage it just feels like containing it, like making sure it doesn't blow up. Whereas this approach of engaging and navigating differences is sort of like, how can we help our organization to flourish as a diverse organization. One of the things that undermines our ability to manage or to lead in this type of context is these biases that we have. And I want to break down bias into sort of its components and show how it sort of happens and then how it hurts the organization. So it starts with stereotypes. And stereotypes in and of themselves are not horrible things. They tend to be based on real data, like it's uh, characteristics of certain populations and certain groups. Where they become problematic is they tend to be overgeneralization. So we, we take one stereotype and we say, okay, that's true for all people of this social group. When in reality, it's true for a large percentage, but not all people fit into that. And to pigeonhole a person into that stereotype and to force them into that is where it becomes problematic. But in a sense, stereotypes can be good, but it, it's, they're problematic when we lean on them too hard. Then we realize, uh-oh, like, this is problematic. And where it becomes problematic is that it switches into this prejudice where we have a judgment. So we have these stereotypes, they're generalizations about people, you know, not all people fit into these stereotypes, but if we start making judgments about a person based on these stereotypes, where in our mind we sort of project and make a conclusion of what this person's gonna be like, what they're gonna do, that's where stereotypes begin to go down the path of being problematic, because we're judging, prejudging this person's behavior or outcome, and then ultimately, it leads to discrimination, where we actually, not only do we have this attitude, but then we have a behavior that is in direct response to these stereotypes and these prejudgments, and it becomes problematic because that person might not fit the stereotypes, and our judgments, our prejudgments might be inaccurate, and then we're making decisions that influence this person that could be positive or negative based on these biases that we have. And an example that I have is I played um, in an intramural softball league, and my friend, he was from Malaysia, he's a grad student from Malaysia, he's about my size, a little bit skinnier even, he was actually an incredible uh, softball player, but you wouldn't notice it, you wouldn't expect it by just looking at him. So when he came up to the plate, this happened with every team that we played, he'd come up to the plate, first time up to bat, and you could just visit visibly see all the outfielders come in. They're just like, oh, okay, let's 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 move in on this person because he's not going to hit it very far. And so they had stereotypes of Asian athletics. They made prejudgments on what his ability was going to be as a softball player. 
and then they acted on it. They discriminated. There's behavioral change. Like, they actually physically moved up. So the pitch comes in, and he hits it and just sails over their head. Just it hits a home run. Everyone gets goes around the base and gets a home run. And so the next time he's up to bat, they remember that home run, but they're still so locked into these stereotypes, into these biases, that when he comes up to bat, they still fall for it. Now, they don't move all the way in, but they're just like, they're still, he's not going to crush it. And so they don't adjust accordingly. They're, they're so driven by their biases. And again, he hits it, sails over their heads. And now finally, by the third time when he's up to bat, they move back into the position, he hits it, and they field it, and, and they're actually able to play better as a team. But what's interesting is these biases, even if there's data or information that would go counter to these stereotypes, we tend to believe the stereotypes more, and we rely on those more. And so these biases affect, not just when you're playing sports, but when you're hiring people, when you're giving promotions, that we have these discriminating behavior that is driven by stereotypes, which aren't always accurate. And so if you're relying on those to make your hiring and promotion decisions, it's going to hurt your ability to lead your organization. But again, you're not even conscious of it. I mean, the baseball example is clear because they saw the flaw of their discriminating behavior immediately. But when you're leading an organization and you choose not to hire someone, you're not aware of the consequences of that decision. And where this plays out is a lot of this happens unconsciously. It's not like you, you set out and say, okay, I'm going to be discriminating towards women or discriminating towards people of a lower class or discriminating towards people of a certain race or ethnicity. It's something that actually happens unconsciously. And there was a study that was done where they wanted to test this idea of unconscious bias or implicit bias, where it's basically we have these biases that we're not even aware of. And so what they did was they sent out applications. They created these resumes of four applicants, identical resumes, and they're going to send these resumes to these different organizations that had job openings. And so it's four resumes identical, and the only difference was the name that they put on the resume. And so the names were Gray and Emily and Lakeisha and Jamal. And those were the only differences to the resumes. And they sent all four resumes to all these different organizations, over a thousand organizations, to see which applicants would get a callback. And overwhelmingly, a higher proportion of the callbacks went to Gray and Emily. Even though there was nothing different, the only difference was the racial identity associated with the names on the application. And so if I would have gone to these organizations ahead of time and said, are you do you racially discriminate or do you have a bias for certain races? They would say, oh, no, 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 we don't. Like, we're, we're actually, we have, here's our diversity policy and we're an equal opportunity employer and we really, we actually want to become more diverse. And yet, when you look at the applicants that they select and say, hey, we want to try and hire this person, you see that there's bias in the hiring process. And this study has been replicated over and over again, where it just demonstrates that even though people would say they got university, there's a bias in the hiring process. And it disadvantages certain groups and advantages other groups. And what this plays into is this concept called racism without racist. So in many ways in the US, people would say, we live in a post-racial society. Like, we're beyond race now. And part of it is based on social survey data. So back in the 50s and 60s, when people would do surveys like Gallup polls or, or Pew Research or any type of social survey and they'd ask questions about racial differences, it was clear that there was racist 
in the U.S. population, and it was a high proportion of the population racist, right? racist views. Well, today when they do surveys, they find out that, wow, people aren't nearly as racist as they used to be. And so then we say, oh, we're in a post-racial society, but actually what it is, is we've become very good at taking surveys. So when an interviewer comes to me and asks me some question that's sort of loaded with racist terminology, I'm pretty smart now, and I know what the socially desirable answer is, and so I give the appropriate answer, but then if you look at my behavior or my actions, they still have these racial biases in them. So in a sense, it's a really confusing time that we're in that we no longer, are the, the proportion of diehard racists is much, much lower, but racism and structural inequality or racial inequality still persists. And so it's something like you might sit here and say, well, yeah, we're in a post-racial society, but racial inequality still persists, and it's because of these unconscious biases. And so again, it's important if you're leading an organization, you actually almost have to be pretty intentional and aggressive in combating these biases, because these biases are unconscious. They're things that just sort of that happen that we're not even aware of, but are, we're making decisions based off of them. So those are some of the things related to managing diversity and how do you manage or lead an organization in the context of a socially diverse environment. The other one that I want to talk about is more just on the ground, double duty. So we have the organization that I work for, as I mentioned, I think before, is predominantly white, and we were wanting to become more and more racially diverse. And so Olivia was a Latino who came to work for our organization, and we were super excited. We are like, wow, she's just charismatic, <laughs> dynamic, hard worker, and just an excellent employee in every regard. And what was interesting, you know, at the local level, we were very excited, but also at the national level, they were excited to have her a part of the organization. And even though she was entry-level employee, she got called to be on all these panels and go be the MC at this one national conference, and then they wanted her to be on a committee for women in leadership. And so she got pulled in all these different directions, and she was like, wow, this is really cool, I'm, I'm getting a lot of exposure. But then at the end of the year, I talked to her, I said, so how's, how was your first year, how's it going? And she's like, I'm exhausted. Like, I'm being pulled in multiple different directions, being asked to be on all these different committees, in these different conferences, to be on these panels, and I can't even get my work done at the local level, and I'm, and I'm just feeling fried. And, and when I thought about it, for me, as a white person in this organization, for every opportunity that was needed, like a conference or a committee or a panel, there were 20 other white people who could have filled that spot. And so I only got asked to do it very few times. But with Olivia, whenever there was something like a high priority committee or panel, and they, they were like, well, we need, it'd be great to have a Latino woman on that panel or on that committee. She got called to do it. And so she was doing double duty, whereas for me, I could focus on my local level job and perform very well in that. And actually, in the performance evaluation, Olivia got a lower performance evaluation for her local level job. Not because she was a lower performer, but because she was being pulled in so many different directions. She couldn't actually spend nearly as much time that I spend here at the local level. And this is true like in SPIA. You ask faculty, faculty of color at SPIA, and they will consistently say they're asked to be on panels, on committees, on programs at a much higher rate than the white faculty. And so then it actually hurts their performance 
performance. And so when we talk about diversity in organizations and we say, well, yeah, but the people of color are, tend to be lower performing. Well, is it because they're lower performing individuals or is it because of their position within the organization and their uniqueness that actually causes them to perform less because they're being called and asked to do multiple other things? And so part of it is, as you lead your organization, is to be, you know, I wasn't cognizant of it. Had I not sat down and asked Olivia how your first year had been, I wouldn't have been aware of the fact that the number of times, the number of things that she was being asked to do that was way disproportional to what I would be asked to do. You know, we had sort of similar level jobs. And so part of managing is, as you think about your organization, you have the majority culture and the majority people who are in your organization, and then you need to ask yourself, well, who is an outsider? Who are the people who are mighty on the margins where coming into this organization might be a bigger challenge for them than for other people? And what are ways that they might be taken advantage of or exploited? And what are ways that I could protect this person and saying, hey, listen, no, I don't want him or her to be a part of this national committee because I want them to be able to focus on their job here, and I want them to do very well. Well, or even telling them, listen, you don't have to say yes. I'll, I'll, I got your back, and I'm going to say, listen, if, if you say no to this opportunity, I'm going to support you in that decision. And so, part of it is because a lot of times minority employees feel pressure of like, well, gosh, they're asking me to do it, and I'm the only one who can't do it. So I think I, I feel obligated to do it, and it's really hard for them to say no. But if their boss or their employer is saying, comes to them and says, hey, listen, it's okay to say no, and I'll support you in protecting your time and protecting your energy, that will help you as an organization to retain these high-quality employees and not have them burn out and, and leave the organization or, or sort of get exploited or taken advantage of. I'm going to pass on this and this, leveraging diversity, a couple things I'm going to talk about. The benefits, a lot of times we ask, well, why should we become more diverse? With all these challenges and problems, why should we become diverse? One of the best examples I have is this idea of standpoint theory. So the way that I view the world, the way that I view an organization is based on my social position in society. So my standpoint, the standpoint from which I look at the world. And so in this class, I have a certain standpoint in, from being a professor, being in front of the class, but if I came and sat down where Emily is and looked at the class, I would have a very different impression or perspective of the class. And it's based on her physical position in the room, but also her position as a student, her position as a female student, and she would give a different diagnosis of the class. And then also if I went back to Dave Shell's position and looked at the class and assessed the class, I would have a different standpoint, a different way of viewing the organization. And if my organization is highly homogeneous, we have all people looking at the same situation from the exact same standpoint, and so we have a very limited view of the organization. Whereas if we have a very diverse organization, we have people from different social positions looking at the situation from different perspectives, it's really going to shape and change, which is going to give us a more comprehensive view of our organization. And so, standpoint theory is probably one of the best arguments for the benefits of diversity. It's like if you want to have a comprehensive understanding of your organization and of the community you're serving, you need to have people from who occupy different social positions giving input to your organization. And so again, like if you're doing a tutoring program, and you're thinking about the composition of your board, well, why not have a high school student on your board? And I guarantee that the standpoint of the high school student and the perspective of the high school student is going to help that organization better understand how to meet the population that they're trying to serve. Another one would be social capital theory. Social capital theory basically focuses on your networks. 
So everyone has a social network, and within your social network are these resources, not just financial resources, but connections to other industries or technologies. And so again, if you have a network, if your organization is all the same people, their networks are going to be overlapping. Probably we tend to associate with similar people, and so you're going to have a very sort of concentrated network, whereas if you have a very diverse board, you're going to have a very diverse network, and your access to social resources is going to increase tremendously because you're not going to have redundancy in your network. You're actually going to have ties to a broader field of the community and of the population that you're serving. Basically, this is just a taste of some of the aspects of managing diversity or meeting in the context of a socially diverse environment. If this is a topic that's of interest to you, there's a class that I teach and other faculty teach at SPIA. It's a 400-level class. It's one that I think if you are wanting to go into the social sector, it'd be an invaluable thing to, to know more about more comprehensively this idea of leading in a socially diverse environment. Well, let's transition to the elevator pitches. We'll start with team one. Uh, good afternoon. Expand the Brand is a nonprofit organization that is solely geared towards marketing for underestablished artists and mainly for people who don't have the necessities needed in order to market for themselves. We are dedicated and giving every artist that we collaborate with an opportunity to be heard through our networks and target audiences. Therefore, our organization has formulated a social media campaign that highlights social media management for the client. Our employees will work with each individual artist to incorporate their personalities and lifestyles on social media sites. Ultimately, this will present viewers with not only their artistic talents, but their individual behaviors on a regular basis. Our hope is to allow fans to not only accept what talents our artists may hold, but to also accept them as human beings. We feel that it's important for fans to also build that personal connection with different artists just to build more attractiveness and we will keep track on the effectiveness of this program by documenting daily followers, likes and comments within their social media sites and we'll also take utilization of the different programs and tracking tools like how Facebook has different tracking for for different organizations who have different fan pages and also we will utilize that. Adjustments in their content will be dealt based on the likability of each post. Gradually make them feel as if they are building a stronger relationship between these artists. So I'm Alyssa and I'm with Food Life and at Food Life we believe that proper nutrition is a fundamental key to maintaining and or developing a successful lifestyle. The key to proper nutrition is a soft explanation on why nutrition matters and how to use that knowledge when preparing meals. We have put together a program where each month two cooking classes will be held and taught by local food-related professionals ranging from chefs and farmers. By instilling a program such as this for our patrons, we will be providing an excellent nutrition-based education option as well as providing an outlet for a community connection. We want our participants to understand the value of healthy options and understand that these options can be prepared in numerous ways that are each as equally delicious and satisfying. I'm with Imagination. My name is Michelle, and our organization works to empower children through creative arts. We are partnered with Middle House, and we are there to basically give the children a creative outlet. So our program works as a semester, kind of like 16 weeks. 10 weeks, the students or the children will be just getting their hands on various arts 
techniques. The last six weeks, the children are going to go through what's called an intensive. That's when we invite different art therapists to come in. And we chose art therapists specifically because they're already used to working with young children and people who've gone through a traumatic event. And um, those art therapists will basically help the children hone in on whatever skills that they choose to do from the first 10 weeks. And then after that, they will be given a survey to kind of assess where they are in their confidence, their motivation to continue going, and then in their creativity. Cool. Very good. My name is Eric today and I'm from group five. Our group took a lot of time to plan out different programs that we could create to further our organization as well as help the local children of the Bluefield community. We decided that school supplies that children have easy access to in America would be much harder to obtain in Nicaragua and it would be a major cost to our organization to purchase all the supplies necessary. Our main objective is to collect as much school supplies as we possibly can. Those supplies include notebooks, pencils, books, rulers, scissors, anything that would help further the child's education. This provides the kids with the resources to eliminate excuses of non-participation in our school. We are trying to get enough supplies for all 480 students. The school supply drive will take place at K-8 St. Charles Catholic School here in Bloomington, Indiana, and monetary donations at Bloomington North and South High Schools. We will judge our success based on the amount of supplies and monetary donations that we will be receiving. The overall outcome with these supplies will assure preparations to succeed in the classroom and has something tangible to bring home and study. We are simply trying to give these children the building blocks they can use to better themselves and with a successful school supplies drive, we will be that much closer to our mission. Cool. You walk into the poorhouse on Kirkwood, nervous as can be, because this can be an opportunity of a lifetime. There are three successful professionals sitting at different tables eyeing you down but also have a nice smile. As you sit down with one of them, your career journey has begun. The Good Bars program focuses on intimate conversations where aspiring professionals have the opportunity to speak with successful professionals in different fields. After signing up to participate in one of our monthly events, aspiring professionals can get a cheap cup of coffee while finding out more about who they are and what direction they would like to take their journey on. The conversation doesn't end at our events, but through each profile, there's an ability to stay in touch and link with others in order to have more conversations and hopefully set up, set up interviews. Just one evening at the Good Bar could lead to a new, more fulfilling profession and a better life. Thank you. Offering a personalized experience, Praya aims to spark the creativity in each child to see the world in a different light in a way that other organizations might not be able to do. Students will receive individual one-on-one -on -one lessons as well as group lessons to encourage collaborations and positive interactions with one another. Praya unlocks the musician within by providing creative and innovative skills to lead creative and successful lives. At our pre-college piano academy, we take a unique approach to creating an enjoyable, learning experience for all by combining traditional and non-traditional methods in a fun and creative way. Through an innovative curriculum that includes carefully selected method books, improvisation and composition and self-discovery training, <coughs> Academy paves a new path to becoming a musician in the 21st century. Students will be divided by levels depending on their music skills from dolce all the way up to virtuosity. There are six different levels and it's a semester-based program. Praya supports the education of children as they grow into curious, confident, driven, social, and independent people.
Very good, everyone. It's fun to hear the different examples of, of what you guys are doing. And on some level, I almost have to catch myself that these are still being made. Like I want to go to the St. Charles School Supply Drive and go down to the poorhouse for the good bar. So uh, it's good to see like there's real creativity and sort of making it personalized. 